0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's open up to Mark the sixteenth chapter. And I'll invite you to be finding Mark chapter sixteen in your Bible as well. We're going to rip off several verses right here at the beginning, and so you'll be helped tremendously by getting those Bible pages turned to Mark the sixteenth chapter, and we'll get ready to study together for these next few minutes. As you're turning to Mark chapter 16, I'll join in the welcome that was extended to you already. It is great to see everybody this morning. What a good crowd we have in attendance and what a beautiful day the Lord has given us. It is a little bit overcast, but I did see the sun peeking out just a little bit uh, earlier. And so it's good for us to be able to be here in the house of the Lord. And by that I mean being with God's people, doing God's things. Uh, here on this first day of the week, I'm encouraged by you. And I hope that the things that we'll talk about for the next few minutes will be of encouragement to you as well. In Mark, the 16th chapter, I'm going to read at the top of the chapter, the first eight verses. There in Mark's gospel, Mark says this, verse 1, he says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Siloam, they brought spices so that they might go and anoint Him, that is, Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?'" But go and tell the disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see Him just as He told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What is the worst thing that could possibly happen if you were to go and pay a visit to the cemetery? Imagine that you have a loved one who has passed away, maybe a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor, they've died, and so you're going to go to the cemetery to pay your respects, going to maybe put flowers on the grave. What's the worst thing that you could possibly find when you go there? Maybe an awful thing would be to go there and find that the grave has been vandalized. Somebody's spray-painted on it or kicked it over. Maybe to go there and to find that the headstone has maybe been stolen entirely and just completely removed. Maybe an awful thing to happen would be to go there to the cemetery and like a cemetery up in Michigan last year, find out that actually it's been closed down. Maybe there's been all kinds of violations and as a result, that it shut the whole thing down and you can't even go in and see your loved one. I would suggest to you all of those things are bad and I don't wish any of those things to happen to any of us. But I would suggest to you this morning that really the absolute worst case scenario is this right here that we just read. To arrive at the grave of a loved one and to find that the body is gone. That the body is nowhere to be found. What would that be like? What would your reaction be? Well, in Mark the 16th chapter, we find that that was shock and it was surprise for these three devoted disciples. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Their hearts had been broken at Calvary as they watched Jesus die on the cross. And while they were amongst the last who were there at the cross on that Friday afternoon, they were amongst the very first at the empty tomb on Sunday morning. They had waited all day on Saturday because of the restrictions of the Sabbath, but now they are eager to go there to that place, to anoint the body of Jesus, to embalm Him for death's endless sleep. But this trip to the cemetery on this fateful day, it was nothing like they could have ever expected. Because as if the surprise of the giant stone being rolled away, as if that wasn't enough, and as if the sight of this angel of the Lord, if that wasn't enough, going and finding the tomb empty, no body, and then being told the good news that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that just kind of takes things to a whole nother level, doesn't it? What on earth would your reaction be if you were in the shoes of either of those three women? What would your reaction be to that unexpected news? Well, Mark tells us their reaction. Mark says that they were amazed. They were shocked. Pay attention to verse 8. Mark says that they were trembling and they were astonished. Notice in particular the last phrase that Mark uses to describe their reaction. He says, they were afraid. Afraid? Why would they be afraid? You would think that this would be the greatest cause for joy and happiness and celebration and jumping up and down. The angel of God says that Jesus has been raised. Why in the world would you be fearful in this occasion? Why would you be afraid of the greatest news of all time? That the Lord has been raised from the dead. You know, I've never got up and preached a sermon on the resurrection And in the middle of talking about that, everybody in the audience just goes, (gasps) just recoiled in fear. That's never happened before. I've never been doing the Bible drill with the kids before, and we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And immediately, kids are shaking and quivering, and they get up and run out because they're so afraid of the story. And yet, for these people who were there at the empty tomb, that was exactly their reaction. Why was that? Why did they react in that way? Last month, I preached a sermon on the various reactions that were present at the foot of the cross. We talked about how different people responded in different ways to the crucifixion of Jesus. And we talked about what we can learn from those individuals and their reactions, even for us today. This morning, I want us to move forward, and I do want us to come to the empty tomb. And I want us to focus on the reaction of those three women who trembled, at the report of Jesus being raised from the dead. And in doing that, what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you three reasons as to why we too should tremble and fear and stand in awe of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three reasons that the resurrection ought to seize us with the same kind of astonishment that it did for those three women So long ago. Are you ready for that? The very first of those is that the resurrection of Jesus very powerfully demonstrated, maybe more so than any other event in history, that our God, He cannot be tamed. You know, we live in a day and in an age where we are able to exercise a great amount of control over many things around us. For example, if the ball game comes on at 7 o'clock, but I'm not going to be able to get home until later. You know what? I don't have to watch the ball game when ESPN or CBS tells me to watch the ball game. I can program my DVR and I'll watch the ball game when I want to watch it. I'm in control here. I'm in charge of this. Or you know what? If I want to do some shopping, I don't have to go down to the store and wait in long lines in order to be able to buy my merchandise. No. I can get on the internet and I can place an order on Amazon and they'll deliver it to me. They'll deliver it when I want it and when I say so, I'm in control of that. We are all about control so that things can be done on our time and in our way. Hey, this is exactly how I want it done. I don't want any deviation from my plans here. I don't want any surprises. But the resurrection of Jesus absolutely just drives a stake into the heart of our facade of control and predictability. Think about it. Dead men do not get up from the grave. That just doesn't happen. The laws of nature dictate that when you die and when you then commit that body to the ground, it disintegrates. It deteriorates. It dissolves. It goes back into the dust of the earth. Period. End of story. That's it. That's all there is to it. That's how death works. And you may not like that and that may not make you very comfortable, but you can count on it that death is going to work that way Every single time. How's that old saying go? That the only things that are certain are death and taxes. Well, not anymore. Because the resurrection of Jesus just blows that out of the water. Because despite all of the laws of physical nature, and despite all of the laws of cause and effect, God absolutely obliterates the power of death in the most unpredictable way possible. In fact, it was so unpredictable that Jesus' own followers, His own disciples, they weren't ready for that, and it ended up scaring these three women completely out of their wits. And I must tell you that Jesus' resurrection, it didn't just frighten them. It frightens me. Because the resurrection of Jesus, it points to the inescapable reality that our God, He is way bigger and He is way stronger. ...than I maybe would have ever imagined. Our God, He is greater and more powerful than my mind can even wrap itself around. Our God, He is capable of doing, and in fact, He regularly does, things that are totally unexpected. God cannot be tamed. He is truly uncontrollable and unpredictable. What do I mean by that exactly? got those two words there, uncontrollable and unpredictable. On the surface, that kind of sounds like an unflattering thing to say about the Lord. What's going on with that? Well, let's talk about that first one. What about God being uncontrollable? What I'm talking about there is I'm talking about God's extraordinary ability to execute His will despite every obstacle that might be thrown in His way, despite every effort by humans or by Satan to frustrate His purposes, that there is absolutely nothing that can bridle God's power or stop His plans. God's going to do what God's going to do. Look in Psalm 115, please. I'll give you a couple passages in the Old Testament. In Psalm 115, listen to what the psalmist says here about God. In Psalm 115, this is verses 2 and 3. In Psalm 115 and in verse 2, the psalmist asks, why should the nation say, where is their God? Why do all these godless people, why do they ask that question? Verse 3, our God, He is in the heavens. Notice this. And He does all that He pleases. You're not going to be able to restrain or boss around the God of heaven. He's going to do what He pleases. He is God, and we are not. In Isaiah now, in Isaiah the 14th chapter, as the prophet of God here, he makes this oracle against the Assyrians and talks about how God has made it known that He's going to actually trample underfoot the Assyrians at the time that He so chooses he says this in Isaiah 14, notice in verse 26. In Isaiah 14 and in verse 26, this is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Who's going to render that void if God says this is the way it's going to happen? Notice the second part of the verse. His hand is stretched out, and who's going to turn it back? Who's going to stop the Lord is what Isaiah is saying. Who's going to go and start telling God what to do? Who's going to try to somehow regulate the awesome power of God? Answer, nobody. His power cannot be contained. And the empty tomb, I believe, is maybe the most consummate proof of that. I don't know about you, but when I think about the power that the Lord exercised at the empty tomb, it just it humbles me. It calls me to step outside of myself and to realize just how small I really am in comparison to our awesome God and the power that He wields. But you know what? It's not just that God has awesome power. It's not just that His power is beyond our control. It's also, secondly, that His ways, they're past finding out. In other words, don't ever get to thinking that somehow you can you can map out and you can strategize all of God's moves. I know exactly what God's going to do here. I understand exactly the way the Lord's moving. Okay, He's doing this, and all, this is going to be next, and then this is going to happen. No, don't think you can ever do that. You're not going to be able to do that. If you're still here in Isaiah, jump over to chapter 55. In Isaiah the 55th chapter, the Lord here does the speaking, and He reminds us of this important truth. In Isaiah 55 and in verse 8, God says, "...for my thoughts..." are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isn't that true? That God just, very rarely does God ever do things the way that we would expect Him to do it. God very rarely does things the way that you and I would choose to do certain things. Think about it. If you were God... Would you choose a nation of slaves to be your special covenant people? Is that who you would choose? It's not how I would choose to do it. That's how God chooses to do it. Or if you were God, would you select 12 uneducated nobodies to be the ambassadors that are going to then carry your message to every corner of the globe? It's not the way that I would do it. But that's how God did. Most importantly, if you were God, would you let your enemies murder your son in order to bring about your plan of salvation and then allow the body of your son to lay in a tomb for three days? Is that how you would do that? It's not how I'd do it. You know, if I was God, and okay, maybe I'm committed to the idea of allow them to kill my son and going to let that happen, I think it would just be a whole lot cooler if Jesus just revived right there on the cross. Like, right as they're fixing to take his body down, Jesus just, Surprise! I'm not dead! I'm alive! Y'all ain't going to be able to kill me. That's how I would do that. But I'm not God. God did it in an unpredictable fashion. Or how about when Jesus came out of the tomb? It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me that Jesus would be walking on the back roads of Galilee and Judea for several days and for several weeks... To me, it seems like the thing to do is that Jesus comes out of the tomb and he walks straight into the Sanhedrin council and says, hey guys, I'm alive, I win, you lose. That's the way that I would do that. That's not the way God chose to do it. God does not operate according to human thinking or human logic because over and over and over again, God does the unpredictable. God surprises us. Actually, let me take that back. God stuns us with how He works and what He does. And quite frankly, the thought of that, I believe, is terrifying. Think about it. Things happen in our life regularly that that we don't like. Things enter into our lives that, that, that we didn't want. Whether we're talking about pain or suffering or sickness or death or disappointment, or discouragement. And when those things happen, we can't we can't understand why it's happening to us. Why is God allowing those things to happen? It may even be something that God is even causing to come into our life, and we can't understand it. And there's no explanation for that. But you know what? Then we look at the empty tomb, and we are reminded that even if I don't understand it, and even if the way God's working there doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, I'm going to trust God anyway. And that is frightening sometimes. The thought of having to commit myself fully in complete faith and obedience to a God whose ways are often wildly unpredictable. But the empty tomb, I believe, stands as the proof for all time that God knows what He's doing. Even though I can't explain it every time, He knows what He's doing. Our God cannot be tamed. The resurrection says that loudly. Let me show you something else that I think ought to cause us to stand in awe of the resurrection. And that is that the resurrection, it just completely changes all the values of this present life. Did anybody hear the story? This was several years ago. There were three college students who thought it would be really funny to sneak into a department store uh, after hours, after the store had already closed. And they went in and they didn't steal anything. Instead... They went in and swapped the tags on all kinds of merchandise throughout the store. Again, didn't take anything. In fact, they snuck out uh, in the middle of the night and didn't set off any kind of alarms. Just swapped a bunch of tags on the prices, on all kinds of stuff in there. And as the store opened up the next morning, and of course the employees and the owners, they weren't really even aware of any of that. And they actually did business for four or five hours before finally somebody noticed that a lady just walked out of here and bought a 60-inch high-definition television for $3.44. And then another shopper brought up a bottle of aspirin and it cost $18.17. All those price tag switches, I think, really kind of serve as a pretty good metaphor for where we are in our world today. Because we live in a world with just a lot of switched up and mixed up values, don't we? And there's just all kinds of things that just seem completely out of order and just don't really match up correctly? Things like character and integrity and truth, those things in our world, they've been marked down. They've been put on the clearance aisle. Whereas things like hedonism and wealth and power and fame and popularity, those things are held up and propped up as being the highest good and the highest commodity. Our society celebrates immorality and atheism while things like the Bible and church and being a spiritual person, those things are of very little worth in our world today. Do you know what? If you come and visit the empty tomb, what you'll see there is you'll see just a seismic shift in our value system. Because suddenly those things that maybe we had thought and we had convinced ourselves that, oh, these are the things that are most important. These are the things that are of the greatest value. Actually, we'll find that the tomb, the tomb says that those things really are worth nothing. And then those things that maybe we had, we had pushed to the side and pushed down and said really weren't all of that valuable, the tomb suddenly says, oh, those are the most valuable things. You know, part of that occurs whenever we get around death. There's some death going on there at the empty tomb. Have you ever noticed how death has a way of just putting things into perspective for us? Look in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, please. In Ecclesiastes 7, the wise man actually says here that believe it or not, death can serve a very positive function for a believer. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, look in verse 2. In Ecclesiastes 7 and in verse 2, the wise man says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You go to a funeral and what happens? You go to a funeral and you walk out of there and you come away just a little bit more pensive, a little bit more reflective about things. You're a little bit more determined to prioritize some things in life, to pursue the things that really matter in this life, because at a funeral we are reminded that this life, it is fleeting. Now let me ask you, if that is true when we go to a funeral today, if we go to the graveside of somebody today, if we go to the cemetery today, then how much more should we be reminded of that whenever we go to, through the eye of faith, the empty tomb of Jesus? Because when we contemplate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are provoked to think about the fact that not only one day am I going to die, but the resurrection of Jesus says that one day I'm going to be raised from the dead. Just like He died and was buried and rose again, I'm gonna die. If the Lord should carry, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be buried, and one day I'm gonna rise again. And then what? What next? What happens after that? Look in John 5. In John 5, Jesus speaks to this fact and points out that there's gonna be, there's gonna be a couple of ways that this can go. In John chapter 5 and verses 28 and 29, In John 5, verse 28, Jesus says, Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, they will hear His voice and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. If the Lord should tarry long enough, that right there is going to happen to all of us. Every single one of us will die. And we will be raised either to eternal life or to eternal damnation. And that, that reality, that awareness, that is what causes the shift and the change in a person's value system. Because suddenly everything in life is not just about the here and the now and getting what I want right now and gratifying myself right now. No! What that says is that life is all about what happens later. It's about getting ready for eternity. It's about preparing for that great day when I am going to be raised from the dead. And suddenly this event, this event that has yet to occur off in the future, it's actually now reaching back and it is affecting and it is changing how I live right now in the present. Let's be honest, the thought of that, that's a little bit unnerving. Because if you are the kind of person who your life is all about gratifying self and your life is all about having fun and going on trips and seeing cool stuff and riding amusement park rides and playing sports and achieving earthly success and all kinds of fame and glory, you know what? The empty tomb becomes a rude awakening to the reality that your life is actually very shallow. That your life is actually very empty. Now your life is actually void of any real substance and meaning. Because the empty tomb says that the way that you're living, friend, it is vain. Because you're not living in view of the future, in view of eternity. You're chasing after a bunch of things that just really don't matter. A bunch of trivial stuff. And that is hard to hear. That's the way you're living your life. That's a very unsettling thing to hear. And yes, I understand that God has given us many things in this life that are good, things that bring us happiness, things that do have their proper place. But the resurrection makes it abundantly clear that everything else in life, it is all secondary to this most important thing. That is preparing for the moment when I will be raised from the dead and I will meet the Lord. Nothing is as important as living for God and the empty tomb soberly warns us not to be going and changing the price tags on the things that God says have eternal value. Which brings me to that third and final reason as to why the empty tomb ought to just give all of us pause. And that is because the empty tomb, it announces, it announces the kind of life that truly pleases the Father. When you think about Jesus, Jesus certainly traveled a road that Nobody else wanted or even today really wants to travel. Jesus really kind of lived his life exactly backward from the way people live their lives then and even today. Jesus was very counterculture in that way. Because, for example, instead of seeking to be served by others, Jesus was the one who was always looking for opportunities to serve others. Instead of being the one to seek out revenge against his enemies, Jesus was the one who was on his knees praying for his enemies. Instead of trying to pursue all kinds of earthly treasures and wealth and fame and glory in the here and now, Jesus was all about laying up treasures for the future in heaven. And Jesus was the person who instead of clinging to his own life, Jesus was the one who freely gave it up. Jesus was radically, and I would even say at times, He was painfully different from everyone else. And you know what? His resurrection, it summons us, every single one of us, to come and to live like He did. Because by raising Him from the dead, you realize that God endorses Jesus' life as being the absolute pinnacle of what we should be striving for in how we live our lives. In Romans chapter 1, the Bible says so. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 4, Paul says that the resurrection was God's emphatic seal of approval of Jesus and His life. In Romans chapter 1, I'm reading in verse 4, Paul says this, Romans 1 verse 4, that He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead so many people today and in the past have tried to write Jesus off as being well he's nothing more than just a good a good moral teacher a good man somebody kind of along the lines of a of a Confucius or a Socrates or a Plato but can i ask you what other good moral man good moral teacher Did God ever raise from the dead never to die again? Who else did God do that for? He only did it for one. There has been only one, and that is the one that Paul identifies in Romans 1 verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. God overturned the verdict of death and in so doing He announced to the world that this right here, this Jesus, this is it. This is it. That the way that He lived, this is the right kind of life. If you're looking for purpose and meaning in life, if you're looking for how to figure out life and how this is to be done, look no further than right here at Jesus my Son. It is the kind of life that truly pleases God. Which means then that Jesus stands for us as the all-time example of how you and I need to be living our lives today. That we must pattern ourselves after and be walking in His footsteps. There are numerous passages in Scripture that say that again and again and again. And that, I'll tell you once again, that is kind of frightening. That the Lord is calling us to live the way that Jesus lived. And the reason that's frightening is because our natural inclination is not to do that. Our natural inclination is not to be like Jesus. I I don't want... To serve others. That's not my natural inclination. I don't want to give myself up. That doesn't come naturally to me. I don't want to love my enemies and those who mistreat me. No, I want to love and serve myself. That's the natural reaction for me. I don't want to live for God or live for Christ. No, naturally, I want to live for me. I want to do what brings me happiness and what brings me pleasure. That's the path of least resistance. That's what comes the easiest. That's what comes naturally. But to live like Jesus? That's hard. That takes effort. That requires discipline. To have to say no to temptation? To have to change my mind and how I think about sin? To develop the heart of a servant? To humble myself before the Lord? Oh my! It's no wonder that many people, they are intimidated and almost kind of quiver at the prospect of trying to live the Christian life. Because it's so demanding. It is so rigorous. God never said that it would be easy. Genuine Christianity, it means having to remodel and remold every facet and every nook and every cranny and every corner of my life and then try to bring all of that into conformity with Jesus Christ. That kind of life it's not convenient, it's not comfortable, it's not going to endear me to the people of this world. But if you go and you look at the empty tomb, then you know, you know that that is the only kind of life that is worth living. Because that is the only kind of life that is met with the approval of our God. Jesus Himself said in John chapter 8 and verse 29, He said, I always do the things that please my Father. If we hope one day to be raised to eternal life, then we also must walk daily in the steps of the One who always did the things that were pleasing to His Father. The resurrection is God's way of saying, you see Jesus? You see my chosen one that I have raised? You live like Him. It's not easy, but you live like Him. And so, for as much as I would probably prefer to live a life that is very predictable, where everything is under my control, and as much as I would like to think that all of the various minutia and the trivial matters that I I invest myself in so wholeheartedly in this life, that those are the most important things, and as much as I wish... That I could just be kind of a a so-so mediocre quasi-Christian without actually having to conform my life to follow in the steps of Jesus. The resurrection says, the resurrection says otherwise. The resurrection just shatters all of those delusions. Because the more that we stand and we stare in awe at that giant rock rolled away, leaving behind a dark and empty tomb, the more we know that He is risen. And that truth, I believe, ought to spark within us a reverent fear. That's what we're talking about today when we talk about fear. is we're talking about a godly and reverent fear that then submits and is obedient to the Father. We do that so that one day, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14, can be said about us, That He who raised the Lord Jesus, He will raise us also with Jesus and then bring us into His presence. What about you this morning? Where are you at? Do you believe in the resurrected Lord? That's probably the best good place to start. Do you believe in the risen Savior? And if the answer to that is yes, then secondly, have you acted upon that belief? Have you acted upon that faith by being united with Christ in His death and His burial and His resurrection in the waters of baptism? If You've never done that before. And if that's something that you're ready to do and that's something that we can help you to do, we want you to know all things are ready. There's a pool of water right back here. It will be our pleasure and our privilege to help unite you into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that you can then leave here today with the kind of confidence that is able to say the very words that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14. If you are a Christian, but maybe, brother or sister, you've struggled with that idea of following in his footsteps, maybe your life has not truly been pleasing to the Lord as it should, then you should know this invitation is for you as well to solicit the prayers and encouragement of your spiritual family here as you repent and as you determine to serve the Lord in a better way from this day forward. You know, those three women who left the empty tomb that fateful Sunday morning, they were marked and they were changed by that event for the rest of their lives, I would dare say. And I want you to know that your response to the empty tomb on this fateful Sunday morning, it could change your life forever as well. And if we can help you in any way to make this be today, that all of that changes, then this invitation is yours. Come to the front and make your wishes known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.